It's uh, great to be with you uh, in this rather strange way that uh, you are there in Belfast and here I am in my rather messy study uh, in London. But it's good to be with you and uh, I trust you're enjoying your worship today. We're coming now to this uh, in your series in the book of Joshua to chapter 6 and the famous story of the capture of Jericho. Uh, let's pray together as we begin. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us as we seek to understand a passage which is very familiar to us and yet also can be very disturbing to us. And we ask that you will help us to understand it better. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So here's a story that is well known to Sunday school children everywhere. But what should we as adults take from it? How do we read this story today? What's, what's its main point? Well, I want to suggest that the main point and a title I'd give to the talk is that the battle is the Lord's. But within that title, two other points that balance each other within the chapter. The battle is the Lord's, yes, and God's enemies will be defeated. But secondly, the battle is the Lord's, yes, but God's enemies can be saved. But just before we get into those points, there is another question that we need to ask. And that is, where does this story fit within the book of Joshua? And where does the book of Joshua fit within the great overarching story of the Bible? Well, as you know, so far in this book of Joshua, we've had the transition from Moses to Joshua uh, and the promise that God would be with him and keep his promises. But what particular promise? Well, at the death of Moses in Deuteronomy, 24, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 34, uh, we read about God's promise to Abraham. And that takes us right back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, that God had promised Abraham to make him a great nation, to bless those people and to give them a land. And so here we are now, we're moving into the land, and the story has begun with the spying out of the land, with that remarkable encounter with Rahab in chapter 2. And then there's the crossing of the Jordan in chapters 3 and 4, which is just like the crossing of the Red Sea in some ways, with God leading the way, symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant. And then there's the circumcision of all the men that follows, which is not a standard military procedure, one has to say, for an army at war in enemy territory, but reminds us that these are the people of God who are in covenant relationship with him. And then in chapter 5, there is the first Passover in the land, again connecting this story of Joshua back to the earlier story of the Exodus, because this is God's story, this is God keeping his promise and the book will go on to see that promise right through until the people have taken possession of the whole land. Well, broadly speaking at least, there's still an awful lot to be done by subsequent generations. But even this, this event here in the book of Joshua is only a very early stage in the great story, the whole Bible story. Because God's promise to Abraham was that through his people all nations on earth would be blessed. And there's a long way to go before that is true from the perspective of the point of the book of Joshua. So this story then will move on through the rest of the Old Testament until we come to a second greater Joshua, the one whose name also means God saves, Jesus of course. Uh, his Hebrew or Aramaic name would have been Yeshua or Yehoshua, the Lord is a saviour. And through him, of course, God grants to his people an inheritance greater even than the land itself, membership in God's own people for all from any nation who trust in Jesus the Messiah. 
And even then, after the Gospels, the story isn't finished because it goes on right through the book of Acts and through uh, the whole mission of the church until eventually God brings us not just into the promised land, but into the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth that we read of in Revelation 21 and 22, where there will be no more sin or evil, no more enemies, no more fightings or wars, no more death or tears. And that will be the ultimate rest that God promises. And as Hebrews 4 makes clear, Joshua only gave to his people a tiny, small, limited glimpse of that in what happened in the land. So do keep that bigger story of the whole overarching narrative of the Bible in mind as we turn to this single event within it. So here's the first point then, that the battle is the Lord's, and God's enemies will be defeated. The story here in Joshua 6, of course, really begins not at the beginning of our chapter 6, but at the end of chapter 5, with Joshua's encounter with the Lord himself there in chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. In fact, it's really something of a pity, I think, that our chapter breaks, the chapter break somehow obscures the way that when we get to chapter 6, verse 2, it's a continuation of what the commander of the Lord's army was already saying to Joshua at the end of chapter 5. And it's just interrupted by this small fact, as it were, uh, in chapter 6, verse 1, where we read that uh, Jericho's gates were barred, no one coming in, no one going out. So here is this city which is shut up and shut in, as it were, uh, rather like a terrible lockdown. And it's, you know, it's a pretty obvious, simple fact of that's what happens to cities during a siege. But I think the text is saying a little bit more, that this city, like the whole land of Canaan, is shut against the Lord and his people. But God himself is the commander, as we've been told in chapter 5, and he instructs Joshua and I how the city is going to be taken. In fact, the city already has been because in verse 2, God tells Joshua, he says, look, I have delivered, and the word literally means I have given Jericho into your hands. It's as if the deed is already done. God's done it. All Israel has to do is simply to take possession of what God has already given. And the reason why God had the power to give the city to the Israelites, and the whole land, in fact, was because this land already belonged to God just as the whole earth does. You remember it, Psalm 24, verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And in Leviticus, chapter 25, verse 23, God said to the Israelites, the land is mine, he says, and you Israelites are rather like my tenants living in a land which belongs to me. And even as soon as God had brought the Israelites out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, this is what Moses was celebrating in his song. This is the song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, where Moses says that, In your unfailing love you will lead the people you have redeemed, and in your strength you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Your holy dwelling already. The nations will hear and tremble. And then he lists them, Edom, Moab, Philistines. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. Well, we've already heard about that. It's what Rahab says in, uh, in chapter 2. 
By the power of your arm they will be a stone till your people pass by, Lord, the people you will bring in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. So in that sense, you see, the land already belongs to God. And this is quite an important point to grasp, actually, that the land did not belong to the Canaanites before the Israelites came into it, and the land did not belong to the Israelites after they conquered it. No, no, it remained the Lord's land. And he would make very clear to them how he wanted them to live and behave on his land as his tenants, or he would drive them out too, which he did later. So, coming back to our story here in Joshua chapter 6, we know the old song, I'm sure, probably. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Except that, no, he didn't. God did. And actually, there was no battle at all. Now, later on in the book of Joshua, of course, we know that the Israelites do fight some battles, uh, as they had already done in the wilderness against the Amalekites and uh, also just on the other side of the Jordan. But God wants to make it clear right here from the start that this is God's business. Just like the Exodus, when God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt without them lifting a finger or a sword. You will not have to fight, said God. So instead of a, a normal description of a siege and a battle and everything, we have in chapter 6 this strange kind of symbolic ritual siege where every detail makes it clear that this is God, Yahweh God, the God of Israel versus Jericho, not Joshua and the Israelite army alone. Some of these details are, I think, fairly obvious to us, aren't they? I mean, there's the six days and then a seventh, which makes this a kind of extension of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover, which they just celebrated in chapter 5. And that in itself, of course, is another reminder that this same story is the same story as the Exodus. It's the same God, it's the same deliverance, it's the same victory over God's enemies. And then there's the encircling of the city, not by a besieging army with great weapons and machinery of war, but by priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the visible presence of Yahweh, the God of Israel, going around and around the city. And then there's the constant blowing of trumpets, uh, just as there had been when God came down at Mount Sinai, the, the Israelites heard this ear-piercing, loud uh, blast of the trumpet as God descended on Mount Sinai. And here again, these trumpets signal the presence of the living God of Sinai. And then, of course, on the seventh day, there's the seven circles of the city, the final blast on the trumpets, the great shout of the people, and the walls collapse, and Jericho is captured and destroyed. Now, at this point, of course, we... We do feel the need to pause just a bit and, and face the question that troubles us, which is, how could God command such total destruction, including the killing of, of all those people? And, and it is a real issue, this question of the Canaanites and the conquests of Canaan. And we, we can't just ignore it and say, well, it, it didn't really happen or something, because the Bible says that it did. 
It's because it is an issue which challenges our faith and, and is, is a real question that actually I wrote about it uh, and other things uh, in this book, which some of you may know, The God I Don't Understand, uh, Reflections on Tough Questions of Faith. And in this book, uh, published by Zondervan, there are two chapters on with the title What About the Canaanites, where I try to give some perspectives, not to sort of answer the question and make it all go away and be just nice again, but to at least give some perspectives, of which here are some. First, I think we need to remember that the Bible presents the conquest of Canaan as an act of God's judgment upon a wicked and depraved society, which for generations had been getting worse because God said to Abraham that he wouldn't send his descendants in yet because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. They weren't yet wicked enough to be destroyed. But by the time of Deuteronomy chapter 9, God says that he is sending the Israelites into Canaan to drive out these nations precisely because of their wickedness, which is then described again in Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus 20, where God says, this is why I'm driving these people out, because they do these appalling things, including child sacrifice, as well as all kind of debased sexual behavior. And God says he's using the Israelites as the instrument of his judgment against the wickedness of these people. And also God told the Israelites that if they behaved in the same way as the Canaanites, he would do the same to them. And in the end he did and destroyed them, drove them out of the land. A second thing that's helpful, I think, to understand is that the language of warfare in the ancient Near East, the world of Israel, had a very normal and accepted kind of hyperbole. They used rhetorical exaggeration, and this is found in many other texts around the, uh, around the world of the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and so on, where they would talk about slaying everything that breathed, and yet it's very clear from the historical record that it didn't happen quite like that. There was suffering, there was death and destruction, but not this total extermination that the kind of language is used. It was a rhetorical exaggeration. It was hyperbole. As, for example, when we say that one football team simply annihilated the opposition. Well, we know that they didn't. What we mean is they defeated them uh, very decisively. Uh, so we need to, to recognize that uh, some of this language uh, in, in the Old Testament has that nature. Also, to, to realize that Jericho, like most of these so-called cities in the land of Canaan, was not a huge city with vast walls up to the sky like some of the uh, children's picture books have it. These cities, like Jerry, were mostly relatively small forts with a local chieftain, a king he would be called, and his armed forces. Mostly they were forts for the army with a small population that would offer their services like Rahab's. And the walls were uh, often simply the backs of houses, as it were, uh, in a square or a circle, side by side with casement walls in between. It's also worth saying that God's command here to destroy Jericho needs to be seen as specific to this particular historical moment. It was not a model or a pattern for God's people forever. And in fact, later on in the Old Testament, many of Israel's wars are condemned by the prophets because they were sinful and disobedient to God. And also, it's worth, too, remembering the rest of that Bible story. Do you remember that's why I began there, to say that the rest of the Bible story includes, even within the Old Testament, the vision of the prophets and the psalmists that show God's hatred of violence and a great vision of an ending to war and a vision of peace. It's a story which ultimately, of course, leads to the cross of Christ, where God bore in his own person the cost 
of the violence and the rebellion of the human race against himself. So this story of the conquest here is one moment within that wider arc of the story of salvation, for which Psalm 47 tells us the nations will ultimately come to praise God. So just a number of perspectives which don't make it all go away. It doesn't say nobody got killed. Of course there was killing and destruction, but puts it into the perspective of God's judgment and of the ultimate purposes of God's salvation. And the point, the point, of course, that the Israelites learned in this chapter, as they'd already learned in the past quite a number of times, was that the Lord God is victorious, that when God's people trust him and obey him, he will defeat their enemies. And that is a lesson that the Bible applies to many, many ways and situations, including, of course, some of the worst spiritual enemies, the satanic enemies that we face. So, first point then, the battle is the Lord's and God's enemies will be destroyed. But there is another side to this story in Joshua 6, which we really must not gloss over. And that is, secondly then, that the battle is the Lord's and God's enemies can be saved. And I mean, of course, Rahab and her family. And this is actually a pretty astonishing part of the narrative, precisely because it's repeated and emphasized several times. In fact, the rescue of Rahab and her family takes up almost as much space in the story as the fall of Jericho itself. In that account of what happened on the seventh day, that's in between verses 15 and 25, the details about the circling ark, the trumpets, the collapsing wall, the destruction of the city, alternate with instructions to go and find Rahab and keep her safe. They mention that three times. And in the narrative, there are actually about 102 words in the passage that describe the destruction of Jericho. And there are 86 words that describe the rescue of Rahab. So it's not quite equal, but it's pretty close. So it's very clear, I think, that the author of this book wants us to see the salvation of Rahab as a crucially important, crucially important part of this story of the conquest of the land. And why is this? Well, the reason is given to us twice, of course, in verse 17 and in verse 25. And that is that she hid the spies whom Joshua had sent when they ended up in her house. And then she lied to the king's soldiers in order to protect their lives. But why did she do that? Why did she take that action to hide them? Well, because she had mentally and spiritually changed sides. She told the spies very clearly in Joshua chapter 2 that Yahweh the God of Israel was the living God, the one God of heaven and earth. These were her words. You looked at them several weeks ago. He says, We have heard how the Lord, that is Yahweh, dried up the water of the Red Sea for you, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites. And when we heard all of this, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. She's virtually quoting Deuteronomy. And you see, having come to believe that, she acted on it. She puts her faith into action, dangerous action, that could have cost her her own life. Now, we know that later on in this book, there's another group of people who come over to Israel's side. That is the Gibeonites, 
even if they do it through a rather deceitful piece of trickery. And they too were spared and come to live within Israel, just as Rahab did. And so we, we might want to ask, well, could there have been others? Others like Rahab and the Gibeonites who chose to change sides, to come to believe in the God of Israel and be accepted into Israel and be spared from the judgment? They could have been if they did that. Well, we don't know, but it's certainly a possibility. At least this prominence of Rahab in both chapter 2 and chapter 6 of Joshua helps us to see the book of Joshua a little bit more carefully, doesn't it? Because after reading through Deuteronomy, we might expect Israel to just go into the land, destroy and drive out all the Canaanites completely. And yet, the very first Canaanite that we meet is a converted one who gets saved along with her whole family. And then she is explicitly and carefully and on God's own instructions protected from the judgment of God that was falling on all those around her. So here then we have a Canaanite who chose to worship and follow the God of Israel and could be spared from God's judgment. And in the next chapter we find an Israelite who chooses to disobey God and ends up suffering the same judgment as the Canaanites that we look at next week. So you have to admit, really, this is a very subversive book, is Joshua. It's not just, as it were, the history of the conquest. No, like so much of the rest of the Old Testament, this is a kind of case study, a kind of exhibition of the meaning and the consequences of faithfulness or unfaithfulness to God, of obedience or disobedience to God. That's the real issue. In fact, that's what the commander of the Lord's host, in a sense, was implying to Joshua when he met him in chapter 5. So then, Rahab becomes the first of a, a list of people in the Old Testament who come from outside Israel, but through faith, change, and obedience to God, become part of God's own people, like Ruth, the Moabite, like Naaman, the Syrian, like the widow of Zarephath from Phoenicia, the Jebusites, and others. Indeed, as you read the Old Testament, God shows very strongly that that's really what he wants to happen, that God is longing not to have to destroy people, although he does do when his judgment is unleashed, as it is here and in this book, but to save them. And so the Old Testament has visions and promises of people from way outside the boundaries of Israel coming to be citizens of God's people. Some just very quick examples you can read for yourself. In Psalm 87, we read that people from many nations will be counted as citizens of Zion as if they'd been born there. That's Psalm 87. It's amazing. Or Isaiah 56, where God promises that a foreigner who chooses to worship the living God, who comes over to keep his, pro his covenant with him, that this foreigner will be accepted into God's house. And God's house will be a house of prayer for all nations. As you remember, Jesus quoted that verse in the temple itself. And you can read Isaiah chapter 19 as well, which envisages not just individuals, but like whole nations like the Egyptians and the Assyrians becoming part of God's people. You see, God, God is in the business of turning enemies into friends. 
That's God's speciality, reconciling the world to himself, as the Apostle Paul knew well, because he had been an enemy of God who had become reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Rahab herself then enters into, first of all, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, Rahab is one of the women whom he names, who are all Gentile women, who were part of the lineage, the ancestry of Jesus himself. And then not only her mention in Matthew chapter 1, but Rahab becomes a model of faith in action twice. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, we read that it was through faith that uh, Rahab was spared the destruction that came on the disobedient, was not destroyed with them because she had hid the spies, she acted on her faith. And of course, James chapter 2, verse 25, again tells us that it was by her faith, she was acting in faith and made that uh, real. This is just worth reading, I think, where uh, James says in chapter 2, verse 25, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. And so as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And so Rahab becomes a model of the obedience of faith. So as we conclude then, what can we say to finish here about Joshua chapter 6? Well, these two things, I think. First, it reminds us that the whole world stands where the Canaanites and the city of Jericho once stood, and that is under the righteous judgment of God. And God's judgment will ultimately destroy all that is evil, including those who remain unrepentantly enemies of God. And the Apostle Paul reminds us, doesn't he, that enemies of God is what we all were once. But secondly, of course, this chapter points us, doesn't it, to the glorious gospel truth that while we were enemies, God loved us and Christ died for us. And Rahab is the model of how God longs to rescue and save those who will put their faith in him and turn their faith into action and change sides and come to belong to God's people. And the reason that can happen is because on the cross, God bore in God's own self, in the person of his Son, the judgment of God on sin and evil, so that we no longer have to face God's judgment and destruction but can change sides as Rahab did and be reconciled to God. No longer outsiders and enemies, but part of God's own family. And so our mission then is not to go out into the world and think that we've somehow got to imitate Joshua by slaying whatever Canaanites we imagine are around us, but rather to go and call them to repentance and faith and obedience in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Chris, and so to our final hymn, Ancient of Days. But first, a closing prayer and benediction. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for what Chris has taught us tonight. Help us to take to heart what we have heard and put it into practice in our lives. And for any who as yet have not come to faith, we pray that your Holy Spirit will take that same word and enlighten them as to their need of salvation. 
And as we pray for the work of Langham, we ask your blessing too upon Chris and his family in these challenging times. And now unto him that is able to keep us from falling and present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. the few